0: You're listening to the PhysioMatters podcast in association with EOS Active and this is Session 104. Welcome back to Physiomatters. I'm still Jack Chu. When we did hundred monthly consecutives uh, for the Physiomatters long form, we said we'd bring you specials when they when something came across our desk that just suited the format. And this is definitely one of those. The topic of joint and soft tissue injections as to what substance to inject, when, where, um, and the nuances around that is it a fascinating subject and one that's come back to the fore as we understand some of the implications of steroid on chondrotoxicity, the emergence of ever-better, uh hyaluronic acid products uh, which have a better safety profile major controversies ongoing over the utility of of prp um and uh, studies for and against that of varying qualities and so it just seems smart to get stuck into that subject matter more thoroughly in doing so we've been talking to jim carr from eos active really interesting company um that's emerged recently and we did a chewing it over episode with him a couple of weeks ago so go and check that out if you're interested in more about what they're about as a company Jim introduced us to orthopedic surgeon Bilal Barkatelli, and he was local to us, so it was great to get back into the podcast studio in full and have a really uh, d- good deep dive conversation into all these matters. Um, one of the things that I thought I found really interesting and, and definitely room for a follow-up on this topic is that when we got to things like PRP, I hadn't been... It's a long time since I've I've taken a deep dive into that literature or given lots of thought to the mechanisms of effect in that direction. So I felt a little bit underqualified to challenge there or to have a, an appropriate back and forth over the efficacy uh, on that uh, with someone that uses it on such a regular basis and so that was definitely an area where and we spoke about this afterwards um, where we could uh, come back and, and do more on that if you guys are interested. So if there are any parts of this conversation that you'd like us to zoom in closer on then me and Balala are happy to, to thrash that out again uh, because I think it's a fascinating subject that we need to get right as an industry. Uh, but yeah, massive thanks to EOS Active. Do check them out. EOS Active Dot co.uk. Check the pod description for more details on them. Uh, Really interesting, and they've got some really interesting products, including ones that we talked about in this podcast, uh, namely Singal, which I've used a couple of times recently, and very impressive. Um, And something that I'm fascinated to see its emergence. um, And that obviously the, the more data comes in, but also the more experience we have using it. Um, it's going to be a really interesting innovation uh, that I'm keen for you to all get on top of, because you know what I'm like, just want to raise standards in MSK practice, and I think this is a mechanism of doing so. Um, I'm not one for fads and gimmicks and lurching from uh, whatever might be the trend, uh, often seen as being a bit of a slower adopter when it comes to interventions. Um, I'm a bit of a traditionalist on the rehab side, as you know, um, and so it's been an interesting thing for me to, to look into the evidence, as well as then understanding the current dilemmas we have to what we might inject and not. Certainly found myself very interested in what ES Active and Jim Carr are doing at the moment over there. So without further ado, here's Bilal Barkatelli and me chatting about all things injections. I'll see you at the other side. Delighted to be back on the Physiomatters mics in person, which is nice. This place has been a glorified Zoom studio for too long recently, um, and so I'm pleased to be able to chat about Haralonic acid. Uh, Really interesting space at the moment because of the timing of news as to what things are doing at the various different joints, but particularly evidence emerging at the knee. So delighted to have you here, Bilal, to talk about that. Could you introduce yourself for the listeners first and foremost?
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, my name is Bilal Barkatali. I'm a consultant specialist knee surgeon. I've been a consultant since 2014 uh, and obviously trained for many years before that. And my specialist area is all of knee surgery with particular um, reference to joint preservation okay so I guess that's the main focus of what we're going to be talking about today I do other knee surgery as well such as sports ACL patellofemoral work osteotomy etc osteotomy and realignment surgery is part of the joint preservation umbrella um, as well as injection therapy and I guess we're going to be focusing on injection therapy and conservative measures and how we can preserve knees and avoid knee replacement surgery which is a great passion of mine
0: and how did it become such a passion of yours within that space
1: So um, all knee surgeons are trained to do knee replacements as the baseline big operation that we do. And uh, the incidence of osteoarthritis and the severity and how it affects people, that's been increasing over the decades. And so the total knee replacement operation in itself um, has been around for a long time. We do a lot of it, but it's not without problems, okay? So the risk profile and sometimes the actual functional outcome at the end of it is not where we want it to be. So uh, in my opinion, and in my training, in my experience, I only like doing that operation when it's going to work for that patient. Okay, And so there's a a correct time to do it when the knee is degenerate enough. You've got fixed selection deformity, you've got reduced range of movement, you've got constant pain. In those situations, a total knee replacement operation is a great operation and will do wonders for that particular patient, get them back moving, doing the things they want to do. But there's a wrong time to do that operation. You can do it too early when you haven't got any of those parameters like fixed flexion deformity or constant pain. And so the human knee joint, in my opinion, is far superior to a prosthesis that's placed to mimic that joint, okay? So if you can hold on to your own knee for as long as possible, for me, that's the best possible option. And so there are many strategies that we can employ uh, to try and hold on to it and keep the function and symptoms under control for as long as possible.
0: What are your primary reasons for considering that superiority of the biological knee
1: joint? So the the primary reasons are the the ligament balancing around the joint. Okay, So if you you try and imagine a a knee joint, it's basically a, a long bone, a femur, resting on top of another long bone, the tibia, Uh, with the soft tissues around the joint providing the balance throughout the range of movement during walking, climbing and descending stairs, running, twisting and turning. How how can you do all of those things whilst these two bones are resting on top of each other? It's all about the soft tissues and the ligaments, okay? And so the human knee joint is a very complex interplay of all those ligamentous arrangements and relationships and that can't be mimicked successfully using a prosthesis okay so on that basis it's always better to hold on to your own knee for as long as possible
0: okay and so over the years we've seen various different interventions be that on a surgical level on a rehab level as well as then the in in, in in-betweens when it comes to say um injections or medicines uh, as well as then braces and beyond sure could you just give me an insight into how your um sort of view of each of those things don't have to go in turn but just just a general sense over the years as to how things have evolved in your thinking
1: and your practice so uh, i think we've come a long way okay i think that's the the first statement i'd like to make we've come a long way in the last 15 20 years in how we approach the degenerate knee okay so really what we're talking about is the the degenerate knee and the way i look at it is levels of degeneration and they've been quantified in lots of different ways. Okay, so uh, that the basic classification is a Kellgren Lawrence classification (KL grading) on weight-bearing X-rays. Okay, and that's a very good way to define where you are in that particular patient's degenerate knee pathway. Now, in the past, and when I was first started training. Uh, not that much um, consideration was given to whereabouts that patient is in that pathway. The treatment pathway would be, right, you've got arthritis, okay, we're not going to do a knee replacement just yet. Uh, we're going to give you some steroids, okay? And so there was there was no bracing, there was no emphasis on... Uh, muscle bulk, uh, proprioception, strength, range of movement. So we were well behind in terms of approaching it with a rehab point of view. It was basically, here's, so here's an injection into your joint, see you in four to six months, and we'll do another injection. And patients were managed quite badly for a number of years, uh, usually between two and three years in that way until the knee would be completely degenerate, the cartilage is completely gone, the joint is collapsed. There's constant pain poor function then you have no choice but to have a knee replacement right so what have we achieved in the meantime okay so we've started to now appreciate that you can do you can do things to slow down the osteoarthritic process you can support the patient to get back to doing what they want to do and so all of these factors such as proper assessment uh, from a good physiotherapist gait uh, and biomechanical interpretation of what's happening other joint involvement Um, bracing, there's a role of bracing if you've got uh, mechanical malalignment, varus or valgus knees with unicompartmental wear bracing can really help um, in that interim period and then on top of all of that what can we do in terms of symptomatic relief and uh, how do we slow down the osteoarthritis things like um, reducing BMI, core strength etc go a long way and then on top of all of that pre-surgery is injection therapy and the, and the three the three main options now in my book, steroids still have a role to play, hyaluronic acid injections have increased over the years, and in the last five to 10 years, the role of PRP, platelet-rich plasma, also has a role to play as well.
0: Brilliant. And we'll definitely be getting, zooming in on those injectable yeah. options yeah. shortly. If we can just jump <clears throat> onto to the, the, the surgery in a sense, yeah. um, but, but probably avoiding TKR for, for this conversation, but yeah. the in that time frame, mm. the proliferation and then waning again of the washout, the arthroscope, the yeah. um, debridement in general. Um, what's your personal sort of take on how that's been in your profession?
1: Yeah, so uh, I think in the 90s and early, mid-2000s, in that era, uh, there was a lack of evidence around uh, what we should be doing in terms of arthroscopic treatment of arthritis, okay? And there's a lot of good anecdotal evidence of patients who I've ended up doing knee replacement surgery on who had had a wash out of the knee and a clear out of the knee and they benefited from it, right? So Mm. we can't say that oh, it was a really terrible thing to do and we shouldn't have done it, right? Because for a lot of people, it did work. But then you have to weigh up the health economics of what you're doing and performing an operation on someone, e- even something as minor as a knee arthroscopy involves a lot of resources, time in theater, uh, equipment, time out for the patient. And those operations were effective, but only for a short period of time, okay? So in, in some patients, they may work for 12 months plus. In some patients, they'd work not at all or for a few weeks only, okay? Okay. And the rationale for doing them is to take the inflammatory... So once you wash out a knee, you've taken all the debris and the inflammatory load out of the joint, and it feels better, okay? But that is not a long-term treatment or solution um, for that particular pathology. And so, rightly so, that treatment has completely fallen out of favor, and you'd struggle to find any good orthopedic knee surgeon who would still be offering a clean-out or a debridement of the knee as a a surgical solution for knee arthritis, okay? Now, there is a spectrum of pathology. So with early degeneration, you can get meniscal pathology in the joint, for example, okay? So now there's a lot of confusion sometimes out there in the literature and in discussions when you go to conferences, et et cetera, about the degenerate meniscal tear, now, the degenerate meniscal tear can be part of an osteoarthritic picture. If you've got osteoarthritis and a degenerate tear, which you will do, you shouldn't be doing a scope on that knee to treat the meniscal tear or whatever because that that falls into the same category as a knee washout for arthritis. But you can have meniscus tears that are degenerate in older people, 40 plus, okay, that cause mechanical symptoms and problems. And for those people, it's perfectly feasible and right to do an arthroscopy, treat the meniscus tear in an otherwise healthy knee and get that patient going again. And they're very separate issues and situations mm-hmm. and, and shouldn't be confused. But the, uh, the washout for osteoarthritis debridement that is out that should not be done anymore and so
0: that ends up falling into a category then of of various things that that showed promise and had some transient results however unfortunately in the fullness of time and further study makes us realize that there's for various reasons it's not wise for us to lean in that direction and so instead we end up with a a, sometimes a a significant gap between a total knee replacement and Mm. then quality conservative management and rehabilitation And so injections have ended up being in the mixer for that uh, middle ground um, and that Neither e- it doesn't have to be either or. It's poor pathway management for them to not overlap, yeah. and for those conversations not to be well multidisciplinary. How have you seen injections? Then, if we try and still play the timeline game yeah. uh, as to where things have come, both in and out of fashion, but also in and out of, of evidence back in. So, yeah. how has that been over the last whatever time frame we would decide? Uh,
1: well, so just just to close off the arthros, arthroscopic debridement. Uh, Operation. I mean, we can always look back, right, um, through time with critical thinking and eyes, uh, but without criticizing the people who were there at that time making those decisions. So I'm never critical of people who did that previously, uh, but we evolve and we grow and we use evidence base to tailor our treatment for these types of patients. And that's what's happened. So uh, one treatment has fallen out of favor because we've shown actually it's not beneficial in the medium to long term to do that. And then uh, that has left, as you pointed out, quite a large space of a treatment gap of of the degenerate knee that is not ready for a knee replacement operation. And because of that gap um, and its existence, uh, other treatment modalities have come to the fore. And backed by um, evidence as well, and so I guess we're. This is now a good time to discuss what they are, and so as we mentioned previously, s- steroids was the mainstay of this uh, treatment gap, uh, but hyaluronic acid, um, especially, and PRP, and in in the world, it's, PRP can still be quite a controversial topic to talk about mm-hmm. uh, because there's there's a lot of evidence out there for it for both for and against okay so it's not as clear-cut as hyaluronic acid for example and even that can be debated but there is strong evidence for all three treatment modalities to fill that gap and that evidence is building for the last 10 to 15 years
0: so let's just go to
1: steroids to start with because
0: um I think certainly I don't have the, the data in front of me as well as it not being well collected in terms yeah. of the sort of amount of, of injections going into knees as we as we speak. The mm-hmm. majority of those, especially in this country, would be steroid, yeah. um, and that has varied in terms of the particular type, dosage, etc. Um, but we've increasingly starting to realise. I mean, in, in my space. We realized it a few years ago to to much of our blushes with tennis elbow. Um, We realized um, about the the way in which that really deteriorated long-term outcomes and that we had some serious regret where we'd been a bit trigger happy with the syringes there. And that to some extent, it feels like only a few years later, we're starting to see an emergence of an evidence base that suggests a similar effect in the degenerative knee as well. Although, you know, still an evolving picture. Yeah. Um, you quite rightly have said that there's still a, a role to play. So yeah. what we want to make sure and I want to try and tease out the reasoning is mm. how do we make sure we're not so nihilistic as to therefore wipe it off and, and start making you know doing an apology tour for having done them before like yeah.
1: where is the space for Where's it? for space. Okay, so well let's start with steroids. That's a good place to start. Uh that's been the king of injections for decades, right? We've used steroids for 40 plus years in MSK treatment and um uh, as you say nobody should be vilified for that. But let's work out where it now belongs in our treatment pathway. I think that's the correct thing to do. So uh, in all three types of injections, there are multiple factors that come into play when treating a patient, okay? So uh, the main factor for me is the extent of the osteoarthritis in the joint, okay? So a proper assessment physically in terms of symptoms and x-rays, okay? So weight-bearing x-rays of the knee joint for me is absolutely mandatory, before going out injecting anybody, okay? So lesson number one from this conversation should be um, either have the ability to request imaging or work with somebody that you can refer to to get initial imaging of a knee joint before you start treating it. So that's the golden number one rule, okay? So then, based on those weight-bearing x-rays and patient factors, uh, we need to decide, is this patient an early mild osteoarthritic degenerate picture? Is it moderate or is it severe, okay? Because knowing that then guides the treatment, okay? So the aim of the game is to preserve the joint. Now, you touched on it briefly uh, about steroids and some deleterious effects steroids can have on connective tissue, okay? So how do steroids work? Steroids, just generally speaking, um, uh, offer good pain relief and a reduction in the inflammation that is caused by the osteoarthritic process, okay? So what happens in an arthritic joint, the the synovial lining and the soft tissues are inflamed because of the inflammatory process that is part of osteoarthritis. The way steroids work is they reduce that inflammation by reducing the vascular permeability of those soft tissues. So what you get is a calming down, it's no longer hot, it's no longer warm, it's no longer painful, and that's the main mode of action of steroids, okay? So uh, when you inject an inflamed joint, whether it's from osteoarthritis or from rheumatoid or whatever, it will feel better because you've re- you re- you reduced that inflammation and the pain pathways. And so it will feel better. And that's great. Okay. It, it feels good. You can get out and do whatever you want to do for a bit. Okay. Um, now, a single shot steroid injection uh, won't cause any long-term uh, negative effects on the cartilage or on the ligaments or the tissues that are surrounding the joint. But repeated steroid injections uh, really affect the catabolic pathways that are required to rebuild soft tissues, tendons, ligaments, cartilage, etc. So by disrupting those pathways, you're no longer able to regenerate and naturally heal those tissues. And so what you get is a a, a destruction of the cartilage. The cartilage is the holy grail in the joint. That's where you want to protect. So by repeatedly injecting the steroids... Uh, you get a, a, a degradation of the substance of the cartilage, which then leads to uh, a very quick pathway to a knee replacement operation. Okay, so so we've we've established that we know that that repeat steroid injections are not a good idea. Okay, but a single injection, if you've got runaway inflammation, okay, the joint is warm, painful very tender, a single injection is not a bad thing to do. And so for me now, that's where the steroid injection sits in the pathway. So if you want to do a single injection, one a year, or one every couple of years, if nothing else is working, that's fine. Once you get to, okay, we're going to do this every 12 weeks or every 16 weeks, that is a one way ticket to a new replacement operation
0: and so what is the sweet spot in time frame for that and is that is that based purely on the pragmatics of each case and their needs and what else is or isn't working yeah. is it based on their the, the profile of that patient extended into their their weight their background inflammation there was a systemic factors just if you can just unpack a little bit more of yeah. the profile
1: yeah so okay so when when would I do a steroid injection I guess is the question okay so um, the uh, we've mentioned the level of the osteoarthritis, so I'll just touch a bit more on that. If it's uh, very early osteoarthritis or very late, okay, so if you've got end-stage, very late osteoarthritis and the patient does not want any surgical intervention at that time, there's no cartilage left to preserve, okay? So all you've got left in that joint is widespread destruction, joint space loss and a lot of inflammation causing pain, Now, you're not going to cure all the pain by doing a steroid injection, but you can help them in the short to medium term uh, by injecting steroid, which will calm the knee down. They're going to be having a knee replacement anyway. You're not trying to preserve anything, so you haven't lost anything by doing that, okay? So end stage uh, grade four bone-on-bone osteoarthritis is fine to inject steroid to see if it helps with the inflammation and for a short-term relief, okay? Um, The rationale there is, the joint's already gone. You're not trying to save anything. Steroids are, the, the main pro points of steroids are they're, they're cheap, okay, they're easily available. They're they're available everywhere for anybody to do and they're easily administered, okay, so they are still accessible to clinicians and that is the strong plus point but just choosing the right um, patient and the right situation to inject them is the difficult area. So end-stage arthritis where they're going to be getting the, an, an operation anyway it's fine to do so with the caveat that you explain to the patient that they can't have surgery for at least four to six months following a steroid injection due to the in- increased infection profile uh, following the uh, injection and going on to surgery. Okay, So just always remember that. So that's end stage. What about early, mild, moderate osteoarthritis? Where do steroids fit into that? Now, in my opinion, they don't have a very large role to play in early mild or moderate osteoarthritis. In those situations where you've got cartilage in the joint, try not to inject steroid, okay? The only uh, uh, place for steroid in those types of patients is if you've got a a lot of inflammation. So you examine them, it's very warm, it's inflamed, and you want to get on top of that inflammation, then a single shot, sometimes mixed with hyaluronic acid, um, is the only indication.
0: Right that's great, and that does take us naturally onto haralonic acid as probably yeah. next uh, yeah. in the, in the in the chat um, what's the sort of timeline on your use of it? Is it something that you started out experimenting as the evidence was emergent is Is there a, an evidential threshold that it had to pass for it to be the first put into one of your syringes? Just if you can give me the sort of insights into your own practice to start with
1: Yeah, so i I touched on availability there for steroids; yeah. they are freely available. Hyaluronic acid is slightly less available. And um, when I first started out in training and as a consultant, hyaluronic acid was available within the NHS, on the shelf, you could do it in clinic, okay? And then there was some uh, nice guidance which stopped that uh, availability from uh, from happening, or from being available, and they were removed uh, from easy access in NHS clinics, etc. Uh, privately, they're available through prescription. Um, so accessibility and availability of any of these is always a factor to consider okay so when they were available we were putting them in and uh, this is around uh, early uh, period of my training and as a consultant uh, when we were doing a lot of steroid injections as well and then in our minds we were uh, thinking which is the right injection to do here is it steroid is it hyaluronic acid and so hyaluronic acid was less used but then because we started to understand steroids and their role in the destruction of the cartilage more and more, the use of steroids became less and the use of hyaluronic acid became more. And there was a gradual shift between one and the other in the early mild and moderate cases of osteoarthritis. Um, And so the reason to inject hyaluronic acid is that it doesn't have any drugs in it, right? So it's it's a relatively inert, very gentle, very kind injection to be able to do. It acts as a great lubricant in the joint. It acts as a cushion. It increases the viscosity of the existing synovial fluid. It helps the synovial lining the synovial sites to create more healthy synovial fluid for the joint. It coats the lining of the uh, synovium and the, the the chondral surfaces, and that results in reduction in pain sensation and the, the firing of the pain receptors in the joint. And so... Uh, Whatever happens, you don't lose anything ever by injecting hyaluronic acid. There's no negative or downsides to it because it's such a joint-friendly injection to be able to do. And all the research shows that actually it has a positive effect on the quality of the synovial fluid and also pain scores and function for four to six months.
0: In preparation for this chat and thinking in this direction for the last week or so, um, I was tr- wondering how much it was that haralonic acid came to the fore yeah. as an injectable, because it is a um, synthetic version of our Sanovial fluid. Yeah. And, and how on a biochemical profile, how similar are they, And, and, and does that matter anyway?
1: Well, so the the working molecule in hyaluronic acid is the hyaluronan molecule, right? Now, hyaluronan exists in all of your connective tissues. It's not just around the knee joint or in cartilage. It's in all of your connective tissues. It's in your brain. It's in your eyes. It's in your skin. It's everywhere. It's, it's a natural building block of connective tissue and glycosaminoglycans, right? So it exists in your body everywhere naturally anyway, right? Um, where it was originally der- derived from was um from roosters you know the um what, what do you call it the um, the thing that roosters yes but the the thing they have on their head is like it's a They're connective eyes. tissue yeah so i've forgotten what it's called but that's where it's naturally derived from and processed from yeah. but then there's a, a synthetic way to uh, develop the hyaluronic molecule which is ex- is essentially the same molecule
0: okay yeah. and so then when it comes to uh, it's It's interesting then when we're thinking about it not having any um, direct biological cost um, and we'll no doubt come to the pragmatic application of it then involves actual cost to to the person if it's something that's then um, delivered privately, particularly in this country. But when then we're thinking about in the same terms as the steroid, the profile of patient of which it's then applicable, does it naturally then... Is there, a, is there a profile of patient and a behavior of that joint uh, that makes it then more indicated than, say, a steroid?
1: Um, yeah. So, um, patient factors always uh, are to be considered. So, in both, uh, so the, for me, the, the three injections represent uh, a spectrum of approach, right? So, you've got uh, steroids, which are uh, active. A- drug-based agents that inf- affect the inflammatory pathway. Then in the middle, you've got hyaluronic acid, and uh, which is on the spectrum heading towards a more biological approach. And then you've got, we'll come on to PRP and platelets shortly, I imagine, but that's on the other end of the biological spectrum. And hyaluronic acid occupies a space right in the middle, okay? And so the, the time, the, the right time to inject that is... Uh, in all levels of osteoarthritis, you can even inject it in grade 4 uh, because it, again, helps with uh, dampening down inflammation in the joint, okay? The effect of it becomes uh, becomes less effective the worse the osteoarthritis is, okay? So the in grade 4, it's less likely to work for longer periods. But again, if a patient doesn't want surgery, wants to delay surgery or wants to try something non-surgical, it's perfectly well placed to to give some benefit for a period of time. And then in terms of when does it work best, uh, what's the the perfect patient to apply in? The perfect patient will be uh, somebody active with a normal BMI who uh, looks after themselves, good core strength, good gait and posture. And they've now got uh, what looks like degeneration in the joint, early to mild degeneration, and that will work beautifully in that in that profile.
0: In a bit of a deep dive to the evidence, it's, it's something that <clears throat> we can all understand on a, an anecdotal and an applied basis, especially with an ad- ability to pick patients based on yeah. our own detailed assessment, then yeah. that... Ends up being where the rubber hits the road in clinic and, and really matters. But it's sensible on an evidential basis that we sometimes need to try to control for things um, yeah. and to try and understand then based on some diagnostic profile um, and threshold that meets uh, an intervention. Havilonic acid a, has sometimes struggled to better say saline, which is increasingly shown to not be inert, and we can talk a bit about that if you wish. But just out of interest, um, do you, I know that it, an argument that I've, I've looked at is that the molecular weight of mm. the hyaluronic acid and the, the quality of that product is yeah. something that needs to be taken into consideration with the literature there. Is that an opinion you're holding? Could you just unpack that a bit further for the audience? Yeah, no,
1: I would, I'm would. i in the direct agreement with what you've just said, okay? Right, right. so um, not all hyaluronic acid is the same, okay? So the manufacturing process, uh, et cetera, and the... The weight, the molecular weight of the hyaluronan used within that particular HA injection. Now there, there are many different varieties and you know uh, uh, companies that produce hyaluronic acid. Um, now the molecular weight, and this is shown in scientific papers, is that if the molecular weight is below a certain uh, weight, so it's four hundred thousand daltons. Um, so the the Dalton is the unit used to measure molecular weight in hyaluronic acid and other molecular weights. If it's below 400,000, it's too small to um, uh, do anything to the synovial lining or stimulate the synovial lining and the synovia sites, okay? If it's too big... Then it's too big to uh, uh, to stimulate the synovial synovial sites and synovial lining. The key aim is that the the hyaluronan will stimulate the synovial sites to create more healthy synovial fluid in the joint. Okay, that's that's one of its main modes of action. So if it's too small, below four hundred thousand, it won't do anything. If it's too big, I think it's five million daltons, then it's too big to stimulate it. So the sweet spot's in that range, in between.
0: And then with a quality uh, mm. haralonic acid and yeah. um, that means that we should take with a pinch of salt trials of which have got a, a lower quality and that would be a difficult thing to tease out you'd need to take a zoom into that yeah. have those things been massively mixed when it comes to say any systematic
1: reviews and trials yeah so so uh, th- this is where evidence and the world of research has its achilles heel right so we're all taught to observe and practice evidence-based medicine which we should all be doing and part of that is being able to assess uh, the quality of the research that you're reading okay and there are a lot of systematic reviews and meta-analyses out there and they do that they do their best to try and analyze the evidence for us but they can only go with what they've got to work with and how these studies have been carried out And so if you then start to apply very stringent exclusion criteria, then there would be no systemic review or meta-analysis to be able to read or learn from. And so I think it's behoven on all of us um, to do the research ourselves and look at what we're reading and take it with a pinch of salt as well, okay?
0: Do you consider hyaluronic acid to be regenerative? Would that be a word you would consider
1: using? No, I don't, I, I think that's, I don't think it goes as far as that. I think um, regenerative would be the wrong term phrase to apply to hyaluronic acid.
0: Because I think it's, um, it's interesting because it's only a word, isn't it? So you wonder if it can be applied because you'd argue it wouldn't be applied to, say, the, the meniscal tissue. Yeah. Uh, however, you, as you've just described, ideally to stimulate um, some physiological response from yeah. the synovium. And yeah. So, But I think it would be a stretch. I think I'd agree with you. Yeah. But I can also understand that... It's useful for people to think of it in those terms at least a little compared to, say, starry. an oil change or a lubricant. Yeah. Purely, yeah. even sorry, I wasn't meaning sterile, yeah. I just meant that the a sort of a somewhat dated uh, idea of it being, especially when it used to be like, I'm going to drain this um, this synovial fluid. I'm going to pump in instead this mm. synthetic version of it. Was that the agent and it being inert and stuff became this yeah. sort of um, um, something that is beyond biology. Yeah, and that's what one of the things I've sort of noticed mm. in my colleagues. hopefully a maturing of language to maybe regenerative is a stretch I think that's fair but for it to start to be acknowledged as being something more biological and has a rationale beyond it just being an oil change yeah
1: so that is a very good point and also well made as well right and I think what this shows is the evolution of understanding of the clinicians that are practicing this type of treatment for patients right so Uh, What we're speaking to here now is the ability of a clinician to be able to explain to a person what they propose to do for them in terms of treatment. And so some clinicians find it very difficult to be able to explain the mechanisms or the machinations or the rationale for why you're doing something. And so in the past, a very easy and quick analogy would be something like an oil change that you've described or a top-up or whatever. And so uh, the reason that exists is because um, in, in all of us, trying to find the right words and terminology to explain stuff to patients can be quite difficult at any level, right? Whether you're talking about an injection or whether you're talking about complicated surgery, it can be really challenging to explain what you're going to do to a patient. So I don't, you know, criticize anybody for adopting those analogies to try and explain stuff uh, because it's it's a simplistic way to do that. And so, again, in the past, it was perfectly acceptable to say it. But now, as our understanding is evolving, our language is evolving, we are now able to describe it in better terms, right? And so what you've said about a biological, physiological basis of a mode of action of hyaluronic acid, that's a good way to talk about it. Uh, Regenerative, I think that's a stretch. So it does something, it improves the physiology of the joint, Okay, improves the quality of the hyaluronic acid that's being produced, It does still have a lubricant and a cushioning effect through the increased uh, viscoelasticity of the uh, native synovial fluid so that it makes the joint function a bit better. Um, But does it start to regenerate anything? So uh, we have to be very careful around the word regenerate because um, uh, in recent years, a lot of clinics have popped up in the United States and some in this country offering patients regenerative approaches to this kind of problem and i think we have to be very careful around that and we have to be honest around that because there is nothing out there at the moment that is going to regrow your cartilage or your tissues back to how they used to be okay so i think we need to stay well clear of that
0: it's a really good point in that we always want to be careful with our language and evolve yeah. it as we know more. Yeah. But then, yeah, the regenerative, even as a word, has become synonymous with yeah. stem cells yes, with, a, with an exactly. oversale of yeah. PRP to some extent. To I know we'll come to, but yeah. it's like the some of the um, some of the magic that's being implied is just that is, is magic it's, it's and it starts exactly, to get yeah. get get into into oversales. I want to make sure I don't forget to come back to the uh, the you know, interest in your opinion on mm. on saline and potentially even oh, talk yeah. of even saline as a therapy because of the way in which seem seems to not be uh, sensibly considered a placebo and it's often the placebo that these things are controlled against yeah. so just just your take on that uh yeah
1: evolved. yeah so just just very quickly i mean uh there's lot l- l- there are lots of famous papers out there right with uh um, sham injections using saline and um so uh the my take on that will al- will always be this that the power of placebo is not to be underestimated. It's a real thing, okay? Mm -hmm. So you can treat a lot of people, treat a lot of conditions, not just orthopedic conditions and pain, with the power of the mind only, okay? And so if you convince someone that you've done something for them, that's a very powerful tool in itself. So uh, saline and placebo uh, are synonymous, in my opinion. In terms of whether injecting saline has an actual physiological effect in the joint, it probably does because... If you're injecting saline into an, into an arthritic knee with an active inflam, inflammation, an inflammatory cytokine storm in the joint, and you're diluting it with some saline, that's probably going to have some effect, okay? So, but it's not a treatment for anything. Saline Injecting saline into a joint is not going to treat anything mm. uh, actively or particularly, yeah. but it has been reported that it improves the pain and outcome well pain mainly and pain perceptions
0: relevant for us to know that and to try and understand therefore to to not wash out these trials excuse the pun um (laughs) through poor control mediums that that therefore want to imply a lack of meaningful effect between a control group and its action group yeah when we know that saline is probably doing more more work than it wants to be implying on the trial and and, and sometimes that's where it's difficult you've got to it's why we've got to read the stuff beyond the abstract, yeah, I guess. And exactly, yeah. useful for us to just touch on now before we move on to to, to PRP. Yeah. What's been interesting for me paying attention in this space uh, a little more recently is that then we've just talked about steroid and we've just talked about hyaluronic acid yeah. can, be, can be used together as yeah. well as then interesting new products on the market that mm-hmm. then combine the, the two very thoughtfully yeah. rather than just mix and shake. Um, yeah. So just if you could get your reflections on where the space is for uh, where there might be room for both.
1: Yeah, so, um, well, we've touched on the fact that um, if you're trying to preserve a joint, then don't use repetitive steroids, right? So we know that. We also know that steroids can be good for breaking the, the negative feedback loop of uh, this runaway inflammation that can cause a lot of pain, okay? Now, you, sometimes it's impossible to get on top of that inflammation with just hyaluronic acid or PRP alone, okay? Um, so what can you do? And there, there is evidence out there and people have in the community been injecting steroid with hyaluronic acid into the joint with sometimes good results, okay? Now, why would anybody do that, and how does it work, and what's the rationale behind that? So the rationale is we are breaking the cycle of inflammation with a steroid shot, and at the same time, we're nourishing the synovium and the cartilage with hyaluronic acid. That's the basic rationale behind doing it. Now, uh, up until recently, um, there has been no uh, product available to be able to tick both those two boxes at the same time, and so people have resorted to doing separate injections into the same joint in the same sitting. Now, steroid and hyaluronic acid doesn't combine very well. Okay, if you would, if I was to get uh, some Kenalog or Depomedro now and get a syringe of hyaluronic acid, put them in a pot and try and mix them, they wouldn't mix. Okay, um, and so. I would actually, uh, knowing this uh, and and getting that message out there, I would actually discourage people from doing that in itself because uh, what that's going to result in is uh, a mixture of compounds that don't dissolve into each other and don't mix properly and then sit within a joint separately and uh, without any of us knowing exactly where the, the mode of action or mechanism of action is. Are are we actually causing more harm than good by doing that? sometimes it might be fine but in other occasions it might not be so we're doing this completely blind Okay, it's a
0: massive unknown as it's well it's a huge you can't take it's not as if you can do good sample analysis or biopsy to yeah, something like that, yeah, that would, yeah. so it may well turn out in the fullness of time that it matters less than we're implying but it's a hell of an experiment to be running yeah, exactly uh, and, it, and
1: it's a blind experiment we're mm-hmm. running as well there's no way of checking what's happening we're not yeah. doing scans afterwards no, exactly. Okay. Mm-hmm. we're not doing we're not doing anything we're not scoping we're not scanning mm-hmm. we're doing it and it's blind hope. And it, it probably works because there are a lot of active ingredients <laughs> sure. in there, right? It's, work, it's doing something, yeah, right? Sure. So it's doing something, but we can't quantify it. Mm. We can't look at it properly. Um, but it, it does have a place because we do want to get rid of that inflammation and we do want to nourish the joint. Okay, so um, so injecting separate uh, products together is probably off label and you know off the beaten track. So I would I would try and avoid doing that.
0: And so when then thinking about the maturing of that, and so yeah. thinking about the patient profile of which it's, it's indicated, and yeah. I, I can so understand myself about the, 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 the sort of desire as to why that sort of almost bootlegging has occurred is because we, we Boot, kind of know. Bootlegging, that's a good word. Yeah, like it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the moonshine, the of, moonshine the, uh, of, the injections, of the injection yeah. world. Um, <laughs> I was thinking that you, you, you're always going to know, and the, the more we understand about, um, you know, Boggy, boggy, and and say um, background inflammation that we know is not. We know there's chondrotoxicity that can come from yeah, that anyway. Exactly, it means exactly. that then the the naivety for uh, uh, people to think, therefore, um, that the nihilists of this world that are very non-interventional in any in any sense. Uh, they are always failing to acknowledge what are you therefore doing with the fact that unfortunately we're watching the the degrading happening over time that you're not offering solutions for these things. As to why it's a really sensible thing to try to disrupt that process. But then also for us to be feeling uncomfortable at that only being just a steroidal that therefore is still um, a bit of a cross fingers beyond uh, a few weeks or months. And therefore, you can still understand the aspiration to think, right, we'll settle that with the steroid, but then offer something more therapeutic in the hyaluronic acid. So the rationale makes sense, but the application then ends up being a, a, a reach as we're describing. Yeah. So then, um, Singal being an example of what's come on the market, yeah. for that to be... Not that oil and water mix um, that we've just been describing, where it is actually something that's um, made to, to to be better integrated. Yeah. Is that something that therefore, if we were to if we were to see a profile of patient that we're describing uh, as we've just mentioned, that that is where uh, you would encourage for those that attempted to start mixing things up and crossing their fingers, the bootleggers as I've just described it, yeah. that that's where uh, that profile of injectable would be appropriate.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's a very good summary of where we are. Right, so. Um, there is an indication to do that, but up until now or very recently, there hasn't really been a product that really facilitates that process, okay? Now, you've mentioned Singal. Now, Singal is uh, a combined uh, low-dose triamcinolone steroid injection mixed in with uh, monovisc hyaluronic acid, which is of the right molecular weight, okay? So... Uh, so high dose steroids, so forty or eighty milligrams. we didn't really talk about dosage of steroids actually, so we can yeah, so we can quickly just recap on that. So to get a very good anti-inflammatory response in the joint, you're looking at a high dose injection. Usually eighty milligrams of canalog or depomedro. That's a big whack, okay? Um, And so that will then have deleterious effects on the cartilage, etc. It's good for the inflammation. It will kill the inflammation dead, no problem at all, okay? But it will harm the joint. So how can you get that dampening of inflammation uh, without harming the joint? Uh, Singhal very kindly put together this combination injection. Uh, It's pre-mixed, so you can have a look at it. It doesn't separate out. Um, it's going to have a uniform effect on the whole of the joint, and it's got a low dose triamcinolone. It's only eighteen milligrams, rather than forty or eighty. Okay, so the the negative or risk profile of injecting that level of steroid is very low and very acceptable. And actually, another interesting bit of information around singal is that it, it's not classified as a medicinal product so non so non-prescribing clinicians can use it in their practice and can get hold of it so it speaks
0: to that accessibility point yeah, that you were exactly, meaning, yeah. which we know on a pragmatic level is really important, important because if there's a merry dance that someone needs to do for governance no matter how effective the product is it's still something that doesn't feel practical in an yeah. ever intense um, world where we, our time is, is is money and is, yeah. is, is, is something that Patients or lose patients as well. Yeah. So that's it's interesting uh, for those that are watching um, rather than listening. You know, it's been really interesting for me to 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 see the singal. Um, I was expect. I think I was expecting, even though I've heard about the rhetoric of it, I think I was still expecting it to not be almost. Um, you still expect some maybe bubbles in it or that mm-hmm. there's still be some, uh, but it's, it's clearly a well formed um, product, and it's really really interesting to see where the evidence moves in yeah. that direction. Where do you feel then, um, if appropriate, we could move us on to the, the PRP? Mm. Where is the the window? And I think it's only fair because you know our, our regular listeners will certainly know that it's something that, whilst I'm no, I can't think I've really been particularly vocally anti. Okay. It's definitely something that I've, I retain a significant amount of skepticism, mainly based on the – it's hard to tease these things out. For. I'm excited to hear your opinion. It's because mm. it's the – I'm most irritated by the overselling. I've heard it being used in, in, in synonymous terms with, like we've just talked about with the stem cells, and, the, and that really I've, I've found it being the uh, the application of it being somewhat regenerative, and that the the lack of consideration at times for, say, a dosage or the retention of those um, the platelet factors local to a tissue it's trying to heal. I've been. Irritated by the fact that this the rhetoric's been the same in joints as well as local to tendon entheses, the, mm. the patient profiling. So th- that's where I don't want to. I don't want to straw man. Uh, the best argument but it's just that because of that i've ended up holding it at arm's length and ended up being someone that's uh, that's never really pursued that as a personal thing i've ever done as well as something that i have not ever referred for and and there is an argument then that perhaps and that's why i'm interested to hear it that i've been a bit nihilistic of i've Mm. I've accused others in some spaces of being and so I'm, i'm really keen to have my mind prized open if i have closed it off
1: Okay, um, right. Well, I mean, your position is uh, um, a widely held position, okay? So uh, people who practice evidence-based uh, medicine and um, treatment, uh, there'll be a significant body of those that hold the same position as you, and rightly so. okay? So uh, PRP has been around for a long time as well. okay. So the history of PRP, uh, it goes back around 40 years plus, okay. So it's initially a hematological product. Um, It's been used in lots of other subspecialties like ophthalmology and aesthetics and plastics for wound care, etc. And in musculoskeletal, it's been around, I reckon, about 20 years in its current form. And it's been growing slowly in popularity. And the the cultural issues that you've described have have arisen from... Uh, clinicians getting very excited about new ways of doing stuff okay and so uh, there have been some unscrupulous actors around as well okay and they should be kept at arm's length and they should be called out rightly so okay Uh, because these treatments are offered on a private basis okay so we're talking about members of the public who have a physical health musculoskeletal problem and are searching for the correct solution for themselves and then when you have a proliferation of unscrupulous actors on the market uh, uh, offering uh, you know holy grail stem cell regenerative solutions and injecting PRP that is a wholly unacceptable situation okay so I'm completely with you uh, on your viewpoint of PRP in that respect because uh, people have muddied the waters by calling it what it isn't. Okay, so let's let's look at what it is. Right, let's look at what PRP does. Now, I, I am a I am a proponent and a fan of PRP. Okay, uh, but it's not for everybody. Right. So that so in terms of the in, we we open this conversation with the golden rule, which is proper assessment and imaging and knowing where you are with your particular patient. Right now. That applies across the board, including to PRP. So before you consider any treatment, look at your patient, assess them properly, know how much arthritis they've got. Now, platelets uh, work by releasing – platelets are amazing, okay? So the, the first thing to know about platelets is they're just absolutely packed full of hundreds of growth factors, Okay. Now, when they come into... So when you cut yourself, for example, if you cut yourself, how does that cut heal? It it heals by platelets releasing growth factors at the site of injury, which encourage new blood vessel formation, they encourage scar tissue formation, they encourage maturation of that scar tissue into the local tissue that it should be. All of those processes are driven by the growth factors that exist within platelets, okay? And those platelets signal other cells to come to where the injury is and start doing the thing that those other cells need to do and help those other cells to mature into what they need to be. So that's how platelets generally work. Now, how do platelets... So there the are two main applications in orthopedics. One is tendinopathy and the other one is, more recently, uh, degenerative uh, joint disease like osteoarthritis okay so in the last 10 years the number of publications supporting the use in both tendinopathy and in osteoarthritis uh, are only growing okay they're growing in number and they're growing in quality the the main problem with the evidence around uh, PRP and platelets is it's, it's almost impossible to do a standardized uh, experiment or or study looking at what's causing the the positive action from a prp injection there are loads of different types of prp available on the market uh, different machines different um, centrifugation techniques and rpms different volumes of venous blood that are required to be able to harvest the prp at the end of it different volumes of prp that come out uh, different numbers of actual platelets in the sample that you're getting uh, there's so much variability in this equation that it's very, very difficult to uh, pin anything down with absolute certainty, and that therein lies the the question marks and the grayness in this uh, in this situation. Right. Mm-hmm. The so difficulty
0: in studying that is, 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 is it's so obvious.
1: Very, very difficult to study it properly and well, but people are still trying, and publications are coming. Positive publications are still coming out. On top of that, if I, if I was to do a venous uh, blood sample sample on you now, compared to first thing this morning, or after having eaten a large meal or being well hydrated, even factors like that um, have an impact on what quality of PRP That's will true. be harvested following centrifugation. Okay, so um, uh, PRP, in my opinion, is still in the early phases of its application and development, but I, I think we're at a stage where it can be applied, but it needs to be applied by clinicians or teams working together um, who are not mis-selling it as some you know panacea of all treatments, but applying it in the correct patient at the correct point in their degenerative pathway. Now, where is, where is that? That's well, that the question, was
0: that's that the just... That will be my next question. But yeah. before I do, could you yeah. just describe what you feel is the uh, relevant and most important mechanism of action, which you which have talked about on both steroid and yeah. hyaluronic acid? Yeah. What, is, yeah. Okay. what do you feel is the primary mechanism of action that's relevant to this conversation?
1: Yeah. So the primary mechanism of action for osteoarthritis, yeah. for degenerative joint disease, is twofold. Okay. So what is the, the underlying problem um, in osteoarthritis? Okay. So the underlying problem in OA is. Um, an upregulation of matrix metalloproteinases these are certain enzymes so what is so we have so this goes into what is cartilage okay so i think we could maybe do a whole section one day <laughs> on what is cartilage sure. what is going on what is uh, cartilage matrix homeostasis within the cartilage you have um enzymes called matrix metalloproteinases mmp's in osteoarthritis, those MMPs are working over time. There's always a balance between breakdown of, of the cartilage matrix and rebuilding of that cartilage ma- matrix from the chondrocytes that live within the cartilage layer. Okay, Now, when the MMPs uh, are working too hard, they're the, they're the enzymes that are responsible for breaking down the, the matrix of the cartilage. There's an imbalance, so actually what's happening is the overall balance is that the cartilage is being broken down and you're losing cartilage mass, okay? When PRP and platelets uh, are applied, the platelets release the growth factors and those some of those growth factors down-regulate the function of those MMPs so they are no longer working overtime. This come back to a normal level of function and they stop breaking down the cartilage in an accelerated way that they were doing. At the same time, the The growth factors and platelets have an anti-inflammatory effect around the joint as well. so they are very helpful in breaking down the inflammatory pathway that's also part of the osteoarthritis. So they have multiple modes of action, they down regulate M- MMPs, they reduce inflammation. Um, they increase um, new blood vessel formation so in the synovium of the joint and in the soft tissues where you're applying them, there's a better chance of uh, creating new blood vessels bringing in more uh, cells et cetera to repair any damage
0: makes sense now we as i uh, as I just briefly postponed as um, the magic question in a way the key one is where in the pathway then would you Mm. see this fitting what is the what is the what is the target what is the profile of of
1: this being indicated yeah so uh, so the 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 big rule is prp works well in grades one and two osteoarthritis it still works in grade three but to a lesser extent uh, but it should not be applied in grade four okay So again, this goes back to the initial point, know know where we are on the the scale. So um, uh, again, uh, accessibility, availability, cost, and level of osteoarthritis, these are all factors. So PRP for me lives in the same space as hyaluronic acid, okay? So these are joints that can be saved. They're not ready for replacement. There's enough cartilage left in the joint to try and maintain and hold on to what you've got left. So they occupy the same space. And then how do you decide about hyaluronic acid or PRP? Um, There are are a couple of factors. So if it's a patient who's got health insurance, health insurance in this country doesn't recognize PRP as a treatment for osteoarthritis. PRP injections, the treatment is usually three injections over a course of around six weeks. It's not a hard and fast rule. There could be three weeks. Some people even do um, every month but it involves multiple injections rather than a single injection, okay? And so then there's a cost associated to that. Um, The cost of PRP varies. Uh, The minimum cost for one injection is probably around 400 pounds, 450 pounds, something like that. So if you're talking about three injections, then the cost starts to mount up, okay? And so I always uh, put it to the patient. It's completely dependent on them. I wouldn't offer it to somebody who has a, very high BMI and a very degenerate joint and multiple comorbidities and is on antiplatelet medications such as aspirin or clopidogrel. Um, so you have to take all those factors into account if it's that kind of patient it's not even on the table
0: okay because you're needing to cultivate their own biology in yeah, order to exa- utilize it, it and exactly, therefore yeah. their relevant health factors are going uh, to make a part exa- play a part in this a huge part yeah gotcha no it yeah. makes sense now are you offering because you shared decision making and, and making mm-hmm. sure we're offering it fairly yeah. yeah are you saying that you know if, say you've got someone that's sat there fortunate enough for not to be a factor yeah, Okay. Um, are you offering them as, as sort of I want to say synonymous but almost as, as, as equals like I, I couldn't lend one favor one over the other on that on that pragmatic basis or do you feel that there are circumstances that then tip a balance over those two offerings
1: yeah so um, PRP falls into the joint preservation category okay so uh, hyaluronic acid falls into the joint nourishment cat- category whereas PRP falls into joint preservation, right? So um, uh, for me, it's always on an individual basis. Um, So if it's an insured patient, okay, and uh, they haven't got access to, you know, excess funds or whatever, then we'll stick with hyaluronic acid and treat the joint with HA, and that's fine, okay? Now, if it's a patient who, money, no object type patient, Um, If they're not eligible for it, okay, and and the the OA is grade four, and I think their physiology is not going to work for them, I I just don't offer it. It's not about the money. It's about whether it's going to work for that patient or not, okay? And so these – and then uh, on top of that are other things like have they had joint preservation surgery, for example, a high tibial osteotomy. If they have presented with a grade three medial compartment varus OA, and I've corrected their alignment – In that patient, PRP is absolutely the right thing, perfect to do.
0: And then access is really relevant then, especially in recent uh, changes to um, our professional guidance and the way in which Mm. PRP has been seen quite abruptly um, for some people's taste. I understand why if people were actively... Um, using PRP as physiotherapists, it's yeah. then become clear that there is no circumstance in which that is to be insured or licensed. Um, and how's that? How's that come
1: about? Has there any been? Has I there forget been a, the
0: acronym of the organisation, right. uh, but it got it got to determined to be that there was uh, there was no governmental. Uh, or legal framework in which it could have ever been because you are creating a medical product a biological and active medical product of which you are not licensed under any and this is including your independent prescribers there was just no mechanism no one had ever worked that up properly and it had been under a radar it got brought to a radar because of some specific questions I think including a a, a legal situation on an insurance um, for which then when when scratched away at it it became clear that there was no appropriate process uh, for any AHP to okay. be to be delivering that, um, and that wasn't because you know, there were evidence of, of, of major safety discrepancy. It yeah. was more that there would just been a bit of cl- clumsy complacency, right. and therefore it was then it is now the, for for at least a while yet the preserve of, of medical clinicians. Okay,
1: well I hope um, I hope that that can be uh, addressed appropriately. Actually, because I think as time goes on, uh, PRP will play more of a role in what we can offer and uh, uh, appropriately qualified physiotherapists um, and I work with lots of really good ones. I've trained uh, injecting physiotherapists in my time Mm. and uh, I I see absolutely no reason why uh, the physiotherapists, appropriately trained, should not be doing this kind of treatment.
0: And I suspect that then a backfill will occur in the governance that means that it will be accessible again. So, but yeah, yeah, that, yeah, I think that's what happened. Correct. Is it was a it was just a, a, a failure of appropriate regulation of, that we'll, bureaucracy. That's and right, and, yeah, okay. and it was quite abrupt. So. In, the sp- in light of that context, yeah, yeah. it does really offer an interesting thing with regard to the pragmatic application of people with a degenerate knee. Yeah. Then if that is uh, for access purposes, then less on the table, if not completely, yeah. then it really does end up in that space where because they are, you know, the hyaluronic acid and the PRP occupy a similar space similar and a spot, similar yeah. rationale in lots of ways, then uh, you know at least there's in, si- in a situation of which it's not that we're, we're completely naked again um, yeah. and that there is an availability then to a yeah. solution. Yeah. That's really useful. Now, I, I wonder if, um, just bring this to a close then, that's been really interesting and, and a great journey through the options available. Yeah. I just wondered if um, I could give, get a quick glimpse, if I can, as to what you feel the, uh, the, the next phase is. If you had to prognosticate as to where the industry's going and, yeah. and, and the way that things are going to shake out, I don't mean you have to crystal ball the, the evidence, that'd yeah, be brave. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean just generally speaking as to, uh, we sit down again, try and replicate this conversation in a few years' time. Where do you think
1: things will have moved? So I think the the next uh steps in this the evolution of this and it's already starting to happen is a combination of hyaluronic acid and PRP, right? right. So we I think where it's going to go uh and I'm doing some work on this as well with some uh collaborators at the University of Manchester and elsewhere and uh what we what we're looking at is how can we quantify better what is happening with each sample of PRP that's taken, okay? So that's the next step in the evolution because a a bit like combining steroid and HA separately and whacking it in and hoping for the best, we have been doing a bit of that with PRP because we get it, we don't know exactly the constituents of what we've got, but we put it in and it works most of the time, okay? 60 to 70% of the time it works and that's a good result and that's fine for now, um, but how do we make that better? How do we quantify it better? Can we uh, have the effect of the platelets uh, in the joint last longer? So platelets last about a week, seven days, until they've released all of their growth factors. How can we suspend the platelets in the joint a bit longer? Uh, and can we is combining PRP with HA? Uh, Is that a good thing? Instead of having PRP injections every two weeks, could we do uh, an injection once a month if they're combined with HA? Because HA and PRP are are only good, okay? There's no downsides to injecting your own platelets into your own knee or injecting hyaluronic acid into a knee. There are literally no downsides to it. The only downsides are how long will it work for and are we doing it for the right patients and for the right reasons? They're the only downsides. And so... I think in the future we'll know more about what's in what what's in it and in, in the injection of uh, platelets that we're uh, delivering, and I think there'll be better combinations of PRP and HA that will be available for us to use.
0: No, that makes a makes a lot of sense. I think it's it's uh an interesting to see how this all evolves because yeah. it feels like it's gathering an appropriate pace. Yeah. Um, the, and the conversation needs to be. Thoughtful from a mechanism of action, as well as then the pragmatic application, and yeah. those things sometimes end up sitting bit too, bit separate. too separately. Um, and and I think that this is why it's really useful from you know, in in therapies. We sometimes nicely can be a bridge between orthopedics and rheumatology. Not that yeah. you guys don't talk, but yeah. it's just that sometimes <laughs> no, uh, we don't talk. You, you can clash, <laughs> um, and so um, and so the, the, the usefulness of. All those all those specialties have got a lot that they need to be able to contribute to that and especially when it comes to the pathway um, we as as therapists need to to make sure that we're across an understanding of what that, that spectrum is and to make sure that there is a, that the silos are a broken down and yeah. that we can we appropriately have these conversations maturely for the betterment of the patients and the, and the patient selection piece is, is where the interesting work is done. So I really appreciate this conversation hey, thank you so much. Thanks
1: for having me, it's been great thank Admittedly you on the PRP
0: yeah. thing I feel that there's more that we could we could uh, induce to be squeezed from that conversation yeah. but admittedly um, that's something I, th- I think I need to read further on to be a, yeah. a worthy interlocutor to challenge yeah. that further because okay, it's a yeah. really interesting thing that maybe we can more do More
1: than them. happy to talk about PRP oh. in the future yeah. Superb. Thank Brilliant. you very much. Cheers Jack, nice to meet thanks. Thanks. you, yeah, nice to meet you. Thank
0: you. Thank you. and that's a wrap session 104 thanks so much to Bilal and to Jim Carr for midwife in this conversation it was uh, brilliant to get us together uh, lots of shared interest and certainly uh, further conversations and discussions to be had on this subject matter and more with Bilal as I mentioned at the start Uh, do check out eosactive.co.uk. Really interesting to keep an eye on what they're up to and follow them on socials. Um, Jim puts out some great content on LinkedIn, for example, somewhere that uh, some of you might not go on a regular, but it's certainly well worth doing so Um, and getting your head into um, advanced practice and when these things are indicated, even if you're not an injector yourself. If you've been hiding under a rock, you might not know that we are the largest MSK CPD library in the world. Everything we've ever shot from every therapy live event, as well as all Physio Matters content is on our premium service at physio-matters.com, £15 a month, £150 a year. Your price will never go up as soon as you subscribe and stay on. But we have a massive innovation coming in the new year, which is of a scale, of a a game-changing scale, I would argue, as Physiomatters was now 10 years ago, as well as what Therapy Live was four years ago. So I won't hint too much about what it is, but in January we are launching new content that will be on a regular basis from our best and brightest educators in our network, and it's certainly something that you won't want to miss. There will be uh, subscription options for that exclusively, but the certainly cheapest way of getting hold of that is that our premium members um, that that get access to all of our content free tickets to all of our events etc they will be getting that of course included within that package so it's already a bargain but we're going to be bringing you lots more content on a regular basis on a multimedia format from the new year so if you're hearing this and you want to get ahead and you want to save yourself some pennies, you like what we do, then now is there's no better time to join Physio Matters on there. Have a lovely Christmas. I'm really looking forward to uh, speaking to you all and interacting into the new year, especially with what we've got planned. So all that's left for me to do is do our cheesy sign out, which I haven't done for a while and so I was um, keeping it from, usually I involve the guests in that, donut, Bilal and Jim could have involved themselves in this cheesy sign out but I was being selfish. I wanted to hoard it to myself because it's been a while since I've said you've been listening to the physio matters podcast discussing physio matters because physio matters bye for now